0: this is the Plucked Chicken Podcast.
1: All right, Pastor Bruss, I have discovered a podcast by a Dr. Michael Heiser, and this is somebody I think that you would really enjoy listening to, to a certain degree, because he is a scholar. Currently, he is the scholar-in-residence at Logos Bible Software in Bellingham, Washington. And it says here that Logos is the leading creator of software for research in the original languages of the Bible and digital library collections for biblical studies. So I stumbled across his podcast. And what I liked most about it was the first several episodes have to do with the Lord's Supper. Different from what we've done before where we take one sermon, of a, of a pastor on on a certain subject and critique it. The podcasts that that he produces uh, they're about eight to 10, 12 minutes long. So we can listen to it in its entirety uh, but if you have if you start to have some sort of conniption fit, we can totally stop it and talk about it then. What do you prefer? You just getting in a conniption
2: okay, fit. Right, That's okay, usually what right, I prefer okay, to right. Well, I'm sure there are going to be plenty of conniption
0: fits here. All right, so let's listen to the first one. Welcome back to the Naked Bible podcast. In the last podcast, I introduced the confusion created by a variety of ideas you'll hear in church and read in theology books about the Lord's Supper, also known as Communion or the Lord's Table. I made the comment that, in my judgment, doctrinal teaching about the Lord's Supper is one of the least critically examined areas of biblical teaching. We agree. We couldn't agree more. I meant that, and the last podcast introduced you as to why I do. Additionally, as we closed last time, I gave you the list of New Testament passages which touch on this subject, those passages from which our understanding of the institution and doctrine ought to derive... I hope you read those, since I'm going to assume as much and jump right into the text. The passages from the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are straightforward enough. They simply relate the event of the Last Supper, the event to which Paul referred to when writing about the Lord's Supper much later in 1 Corinthians 11.
2: First of all, I'm not sure how this is going to play into his argument uh, but the timeline that he's proposing is, is actually a little bit messed up. Uh, Paul uh, composes 1 Corinthians in AD 55 um, and you know the fact of the matter is we don't have firm dates for all of the Synoptic Gospels. However, what we do know is that the, the um, Luke-Acts, right, the, the Book of Luke and the Book of Acts seem to be uh, a paired, paired together uh, and there are references um, the, the we references later in the book of of Acts that would suggest that Luke was with Paul way beyond the time that he was uh, had had written the the Corinthian correspondence. and so certainly we have to place I mean, it seems to me that we have to place the composition of Luke um, far later than the writing of first corinthians first um, Corinthians. and uh, again, you know if if uh, the argument here is that Paul is coming with a spin on 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, on the words of institution. That's, a, that's, that's highly problematic. And even Paul's own words, right, uh, where he introduces that, he says uh, uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23. I mean, this is so important. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and so on and so forth. So, St. Paul is claiming here uh, a, a direct revelation from the Lord about the institution of the sacrament of the altar. When did this happen? We're not sure. Uh, could it have happened in the, in the days of blindness uh, uh, after the Damascus Road incident? Um, we, we just don't know. But the point is, um, this is early, a part, early on a, a part of the Pauline ministry. So um, I, I just don't know where he's going with the timeline here, but let's just plant a flag here and say, if this becomes an issue, we'll return to it later on.
0: 10-4. I'm going to repeat that for emphasis. It was Paul who referred to the Last Supper in the Synoptic Gospels when discussing the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Now you might say, why repeat that, Mike? Are you trying to telegraph something important? Something that may be hidden in plain sight? Yep. Most of the confusion over the Lord's Supper and its meaning comes from John 6, the passage in the Gospel of John that has Jesus referring to his body as bread and his blood as wine. Some traditions take that literally and teach that the bread and wine literally become the flesh and blood of Jesus at communion. And so they are ingesting Jesus, the bread of life, which surely has to contribute in some way to salvation.
2: Okay, there is no tradition out there that that reads the text against itself. Jesus never says that his uh, his blood is wine in John chapter 6. In fact, what he talks about is his flesh is true food. He never says it's bread. He says his flesh is true food and that his blood is true drink. And this is John chapter 6, uh, verse 55, for those who are following along in the scriptures. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life, he's referring to his entire person, not to the, you know, what what you and I would call flesh or blood sort of extrapolated from the entire person of Christ. This is going to prove to be a fundamental problem for him if he goes forward because he's setting up a straw man.
0: This is utterly wrong for a simple reason. John is not one of the synoptic gospels. And this episode in John 6 is not the Last Supper.
2: Okay, so let's just talk about his theory thus far. His theory thus far is that all of the Synoptic Gospels, including Luke, which is without doubt later than 1 Corinthians, all of the Synoptic Gospels come before Paul. And so if Paul's referring back to the Synoptic Gospels, then we have to read Paul in light of the Synoptic Gospels only. And we are totally happy to do this. However, I mean, there's there's a falsehood in this theory. And the falsehood in this theory is that all the Synoptic Gospels come before St. Paul. The event comes before 1 Corinthians 11, just as it comes before Matthew 26 and so on and so forth. I mean, there's just no question about this. Or Matthew, yeah, 26. Now, what he's also suggesting is that John must be—he's he, he's assuming the sort of traditional dating of the gospel according to St. John. We know that John lived late, uh, and there are some theories about the date of composition that place it in the 80s, in the 90, okay, or 80-90s, excuse me. But there are also strong theories that are marshaled that it's placed in the uh, 40s, okay, uh, that it's a very early gospel, in a sense, however, this doesn't even matter. We have to take the words as they stand, okay, um, and we'll, we'll see how he develops it from here. But, but this is his theory, just so everybody understands. The synoptic Gospels come before Paul, writing 1 Corinthians 11. This is not correct.
0: In the three synoptic Gospels and their description of the Last Supper, there are several elements present in all of them. One... Jesus makes some comment that connects his broken body and the bread and his blood, the wine, to the new covenant. Two, after making that connection, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples and then tells them that one among their number will betray him. John 6 doesn't have any of those details. Duh. John 6
2: happens significantly earlier than John 13. There's no question about this. I
0: don't even know what he's trying to do here. In fact, the scene of the Last Supper and the announcement of the betrayal occurs in John 13, seven chapters later. The Last Supper scene is therefore completely disconnected from John 6, the Bread of Life teaching. And we know from Paul that it is the night of the Last Supper that is supposed to inform our doctrine of communion, since Paul explicitly starts his own discussion of the Lord's Supper with the words, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, so on and so forth.
2: He is exactly right. The accounts that need to inform our teaching on the Lord's Supper are those contained in the Synoptic Gospels, as well as in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So he's got it absolutely right. Let's just see if he follows up and holds himself to that.
0: That is nowhere in view in John 6. So framing your doctrine of communion on John 6, or with John 6 as the center, is a bit misguided, to say the least. We totally agree with that.
2: And so do the Lutheran confessions, and we'll talk about that later. Do you think, Pastor? Absolutely.
0: But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Let's start with the problem passage of John 6, and then work through that on its own terms, and then come back to this disconnect issue. It's a long passage, so I'll be breaking it up into manageable morsels, pardon the pun, and highlighting some key ideas. Let's start by reading John 6, 22 through 34 in the ESV. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must me do? To be doing the works of God. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, or there are a few things that are critical to notice from this section of John chapter 6. First, Jesus links the idea of food that endures to eternal life to himself, and more importantly, to belief, that is, belief in him. That happens by noting three statements in the passage we just read. Verse 27, he says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Verse 29 says, Jesus answered them, quote, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent, unquote. And finally, verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world.
2: His understanding of John 6 to this point is spot on. He's, he's got it exactly right. What Jesus is talking about here is belief in his entire person, the divine nature that assumed the human nature in the womb of the virgin as the propitiation for the sin of the world. He's, he's got it right on the head.
1: But I do get where he's coming from in the sense that there are many who could look at John 6 and use this as a
2: communion or at least to undergird a doctrine of communion. And, and I think people do make that mistake. Um, my grandfather, um, his childhood church is, uh, was uh, St. Saint Saint Lucas in Bayview, um, Wisconsin. And on the altar, in German, it says, Ich bin das Brot des Lebens. I am the bread of life. You know, with the altar's heavy um, associations with the sacrament of the altar, blah, 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 uh, it would be very easy in the minds of people to conflate what Jesus is saying here with the sacrament of the altar. So even in the imagination of Lutherans, uh, this could go awry. And I've often thought that that's a big mistake to have that uh, saying on the altar at St. Lucas. But the Roman Catholic Church actually explicitly makes this a problem.
0: And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Now, according to these three statements, we can make three text-driven observations already. First... The thing we are to labor for, using the language of verse 27, is Jesus, who is, according to these verses, the food that gives eternal life. Now, some would stop the observation process right here and say, right, that's why we believe the wafer we eat at communion is the body of Christ. We need to consume the very body and blood of Christ as part of having eternal life.
2: I'm not sure of anybody uh, who would explicitly derive from what he's said here uh, that this passage, this passage in John, uh, we must therefore ingest the, the wafer in communion as the true body and blood of Christ. That argument is foreign to me. Uh, it's certainly not alive among Lutherans, and I don't even think it's alive among Roman Catholics.
0: But that would be mistaken. You can't just pick verse 27 and think you understand the entire passage let alone the verses that follow it. Second text-driven observation is that according to these three statements, our job, as it were, is not eating Jesus, even if that's understood as a communion wafer. Our job is to believe in Jesus. Believing was the eating, not the other way around. We learn that from verse 29. I'll read it again. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent notice that our work is a, this word points back to the labor of verse 27 work and labor when you read the two verses together the food is jesus and that means that the eating is believing not literally eating anything correct but it's interesting to me
1: how he is making these assertions, which are correct. But isn't this something that's already been recorded, say, in the Lutheran
2: confessions, very clearly? Very clearly, and and actually, the, there's a history here that goes all the way back to Saint Augustine in the Western tradition, uh, if not earlier, uh, where, where where Saint Augustine actually reads John chapter six completely having in mind faith in the incarnate Son of God. Augustine himself doesn't read it as, as having to do with the sacrament of the altar. So, you know, here's the problem, and we've we've maybe talked about this before, I know we've talked about it between ourselves, is that all all heresies are just re, rehashings of old heresies, right? So a contemporary heresy rehashes an old heresy, and the problem with new heresies is the ignorance of of the tradition of the church that has already settled so many of these issues. Pelagianism is a classic example, right, the Billy Graham Pelagianism.
1: But where we're going to see as Dr. Heiser continues with this, even though we are in total agreement with what he is saying right now, it's going to change. And I think this is where it's just going to go off the rails completely.
2: Good. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. And, and actually, to me, um, I, I think I can already see the setup for the for the straw man. The straw man is some people say that some parts of John 6 have to do with the sacrament of the altar. I'm showing you early in John 6 that it doesn't have to do with the sacrament of the altar. We agree 100%. Uh, and in fact, we're going to agree with him at the end of John chapter 6 that it has nothing to do with the sacrament of the altar. But the conclusions that I think he's going to draw from that are going to be totally incorrect
0: conclusions. This is quite consistent with the third text-driven observation from verse 33. It isn't bread or a wafer that gives eternal life. It's Jesus, the one who came down from heaven.
2: We can't let that statement hang out there as an absolute statement about all biblical teaching, that it's not a wafer or a piece of bread that gives eternal life. So lest the hearer take John 6.33 as ruling out a piece of bread, giving eternal life, and being the body of Christ. The, the point is, John six isn't even addressing the question of whether a, a piece of bread actually gives eternal life. It's addressing the question, in what person do I find everlasting life? And it's in Jesus Christ.
0: And when we combine verse 33 with those other two verses— interpreting all three as a group, forming a whole coherent thought, we see that what produces eternal life isn't any bread that represents Jesus. It's belief in Jesus.
1: Okay, again, what he is saying here is correct when it comes to John 6. But did you hear him? It was really, really
2: quick there. He just showed his card when he said that it represents... Good, and, and I think another thing to add to this, if, if I just may, is that yes, it is absolutely belief in Jesus, right? St. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and it's the same Lord Jesus that Peter clings to in faith who says, this is my body, this is my blood. This is going to be a problem for Mr. Heiser in, in, a, in a moment, I
0: have no doubt. In other words, the object of faith is a who, a person, Jesus, not a what a piece of bread that represents Jesus. Let's keep reading. John 6, verses 35 to 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. to having a text-driven theology of communion and of this passage. First, notice that Jesus calls himself the bread of life. He's therefore using bread as an analogy for himself for some reason. Is it coherent to presume that Jesus is saying or teaching that the disciples need to consume his actual flesh and blood, even if one softens that idea, by asserting that the bread and wine ingested are transformed into his actual flesh and blood? The critical point here is that Jesus tells us what he means by the analogy. And don't forget, this isn't the Last Supper passage anyway that Paul draws on for his theology of communion.
2: He is exactly right. This is not the Last Supper passage. Um, and uh, his exegesis thus far has been fairly solid, uh, but there's a conclusion that's hanging out there uh, th- that is highly problematic. It's, it's that since this passage does not say to literally eat Christ's body and drink his blood, what it's actually saying is believe in the incarnate Son of God as the propitiation for your sins. That's what it's saying. What he's, what he's doing is he is saying, therefore, any belief that bread is body and wine is blood in the Lord's Supper and that you take it for everlasting life is an incorrect belief. The problem is, this passage doesn't even speak to that question. And just to piggyback on that just a little bit, what he said is that
1: when St. Paul, when he refers to communion, he's not talking about John 6, which is exactly right. He is not talking about John 6.
2: And why is that, Pastor Kearns? Why is, why is Paul not talking about John 6 when Paul is talking about communion?
1: Because he knows the difference between the two types of
2: eating. Good. He knows the difference between the two types of eating, and he also knows that John 6 has nothing to do with communion, right? It takes place at a totally different time. It's not the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting because St. Paul actually gives a time stamp
1: the night in which he was betrayed. Correct. He's not talking about uh, right after
0: the feeding of the 5,000. Right, right, exactly. (laughs) That's good. But setting that disconnect aside for the time being, what does Jesus say to clarify what he actually means? Well, right after he says, I'm the bread of life, in verse 35 he adds, catch this, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So therefore coming is the solution or the antithesis. Uh, Of hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So believing takes care of the thirst problem. Now did you catch that? Hunger and thirst aren't satisfied by consuming Jesus in this passage, but by coming to him and believing on him. And of course the hunger and thirst, I think all views would admit and put forth the notion that We're talking about spiritual hunger, spiritual thirst. There's some spiritual deprivation. These things are not resolved by consuming Jesus' body and blood in any literal sense.
2: He is correct. He guardedly and correctly stated the the issue here in in John 6.35 by saying that the hunger and thirst are sated by coming and believing, okay? So um, it is in John 35... Jesus is not talking about eating and drinking his body and blood in the sacrament of the altar. But he cannot, like he did at the very end of the statement, make an absolute blanket statement that the hunger and thirst are not sated at all by the eating and drinking of Christ's body and blood in the sacrament of the altar. Notice what the slip is, okay? This is just a basic like Aristotelian logic problem that he's got. I see a, a creature over there with two legs. Men have two legs, therefore it's a man. Well, it turns out it's a bird, okay? I mean, this—this this is you can't do this stuff. That's ridiculous, and we all realize this. That's exactly what he's doing here.
0: The wording tells us that what Jesus means to say is that the solution is to come to him and believe on him. That's it. That tells us clearly that Jesus is using the bread and the wine as metaphorical
2: okay so he just made the jump right there yep Jesus has not talked about wine here at all let the reader be aware what he's doing is he's saying Jesus he's saying wines in the passage which it's not Jesus is talking about wine metaphorically which he's not therefore the supper of the Lord is a metaphorical eating of the body and blood of Christ this is completely insane so let me ask you a question so what the confessions, what you, what I, what Dr.
1: Heiser, what we're all saying here is that John 6 has nothing to do
2: with any sort of doctrine of the sacrament. Well, that's what you and I are saying, but, but notice what Heiser is doing here. He's saying it doesn't have anything to do with the sacrament of the altar, except for that it does, because what he's, what he's doing is he is lining up bread and wine, he's, he's importing wine into the passage... Uh, and, and then he's saying, look, uh, whenever Jesus talks about bread and wine, he's talking about it metaphorically. Therefore, we're going to superimpose this upon our understanding of the sacrament of the altar. And that is bad, bad exegesis.
0: And that his teaching isn't about consuming his flesh and blood in any literal sense directly or by some sort of transformation process. The issue is, do you believe in Jesus, not have you eaten the the body and the blood of Jesus again. However, that is parsed.
2: He's right. That is absolutely not the issue in John chapter six. Uh, it's it's all belief in the incarnate. I mean, it le- and let's just focus on this. It is this whole business with the f- well. It's going to come up a little bit later on with the flesh. Right. <clears throat> the big problem with the the Jews here that are with Jesus is the offense. That the transcendent God of Israel should come into the flesh of a sweating, farting, hook-nosed Jewish peasant, which is exactly what we have here. They don't get it. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 guys, hold on. This is exactly how Yahweh saves the world from its sin. You're looking at him. Believe in this, okay? That's exactly right. Now, it doesn't have to do with physical eating and drinking of anything. Absolutely correct. But we dare not take that exclusion and superimpose it upon our understanding of the sacrament of the altar. Why? Because this has to do with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and not with the sacrament of the altar. Hearers, if you're listening to us, Pastor Kearns and I right now are drawing attention to this by standing
0: on our heads. (laughs) The issue is faith. The issue is belief. The bread and the wine are only analogies. There is
2: no wine in John chapter 6. Read the whole chapter. There is no wine whatsoever.
0: Lastly, this approach is demonstrated as accurate when we get to verse 40. Jesus says very plainly, Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. He doesn't say everyone who consumes the bread and the wine at a ceremony thereby ingesting my body and blood will have eternal life. He doesn't say that at all.
1: That is really wild to me how he is coming up with this argument. I mean, as you have pointed out, since we have begun, he is taking one thing where we all acknowledge that Jesus is not saying something, but he's adding something to this argument, or he's adding something to what Jesus is saying, and then as we listen to him, he's going to say remember John 6? Think about John 6. Even when Jesus is now going to say, this is my body, he's going to say, hey, remember what took place at John 6? It's not happening here either.
2: That, and that's just so frustrating, isn't it? Um, and he's, he's right. I mean, we cannot, Jesus does not say anything here about eating his body and drinking his blood. Nothing, not a word. That's just the point. He doesn't say anything. And so we dare not superimpose what he is saying on our understanding of where he does say, eat my body, drink my blood.
0: What he says, point blank, is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. The issue is believing in Jesus, not believing that we're consuming him, and therefore through that act receiving him and his grace and his goodness and so on and so forth. I think you can see that this passage, not only is it dense and difficult to understand, you are swapping this in, this whole discussion, even after trying to parse it. If you're letting this passage dictate how you think theologically about communion, about the Lord's Supper, it creates a lot of problems and a lot of misconceptions. We'll continue with this issue in the next episode.
2: He's exactly right, but here's what the problem is. We are agreeing 100%, you and I, Mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. And every Lutheran uh, agrees 100% that John 6 has nothing to do with the sacrament of the altar. Well, what he's doing is he has attributed to presumably Lutherans that we read this passage as having to do with the sacrament of the altar, which we don't, okay? He has identified how one would misread this passage if one were trying to apply it to the sacrament of the altar. Which is
1: easy to do,
2: Could be easy to do.
1: I mean, on on a surface level, without doing what he's doing, you know. And kudos to him for reading the entire text. We've heard many sermons where, and again, this is not a sermon, but you know, in the sermon, it's just this very brief look at the scriptures. He has slowly read through the entire text, and so if someone comes to the to the text wanting to use this as support material
2: for the sacrament of the altar. They could easily do it. Easily and incorrectly do it, correct? But you know what? Here's the irony of, of what's going to happen or what he's doing. He is saying this does not support a oral eating of the body and blood of Christ, okay, which is true. But he's gonna what he's going to do now is he's going to take a passage that he says does not pertain to the sacrament of the altar, and he's going to superimpose it on the sacrament of the altar. That is exactly what he's going to do.
1: All right, so that is his first episode. And so now we're going to see where he goes with the second episode.
0: Welcome back to the Naked Bible Podcast. In the last podcast episode, we began to look at John chapter six, verses 22 through 65, as we continued our discussion of the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. We only got as far as verse 40, but we're able to see clearly from the text that while Jesus created an analogy between himself and the bread and wine, That analogy was clearly to be understood metaphorically. By virtue of Jesus' own comments, we learn that he taught about a hunger and thirst that isn't solved by literally eating and drinking anything. Rather, the hunger and thirst he described was satisfied by coming to him and believing. Literal hunger and thirst aren't taken away by coming and believing. So we know that when Jesus tells us as much... He's using the bread and wine analogously, not literally. These were clear statements that allowed us to understand the meaning of the Lord's Supper from the biblical text, not from a creed or a denominational tradition.
2: These are clearly not statements that allow us to understand the sacrament of the altar on the basis of the biblical text, and this is this is exactly the the trick that he's played. Or the um, what I want to do is I want to credit him with more. I, I don't want him to. I don't think he's trying to trick anybody here, but there is a. Uh, Look, I mean, what he's done, we've talked about this before. He said this does not pertain to the sacrament of the altar, and now he's making it pertain to the sacrament of the altar. We agree with the first point, and we agree, but, but here's where we disagree. We disagree that it's possible to take something that doesn't speak about a certain doctrine and make it talk to that certain doctrine.
0: That's what we do on the Naked Bible. In this podcast episode, we want to finish looking at John 6, the first of three key passages for understanding the lord's supper or at least talking and discussing a, the debate over the lord's supper we'll pick up now with john 6:41 through 59 verse 41 so the jews grumbled about him because he said i am the bread that came down from heaven they said is not this jesus the son of joseph whose father and mother we know As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue, as he taught in Capernaum. Now this section is where the confusion really starts. But it's not hard to parse what Jesus is saying here if we interpret this section of John 6 by the preceding material in John 6. So the key interpretive issue is whether you're going to isolate these verses that describe eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Jesus from its preceding context. I would suggest interpreting any passage by its preceding context is a good idea, but unfortunately that isn't what happens all or even most of the time when it comes to the Bible. If we ignore the preceding context in this case, then it's easy to see how some traditions actually teach that the bread and water are transformed into the literal flesh and blood of Jesus. But if that's the case, then you have to entertain all sorts of silly but understandable questions that have actually been brought up by theologians, such as, Does Jesus or a part of Jesus really spend time in our stomachs, our intestines? Will we expel Jesus when we go to the bathroom? Why would grace need to travel through our stomachs and intestines anyway? And lastly, what if a few crumbs fall on the floor and a mouse eats it? Is the mouse sanctified?
2: Again, this is straw man argumentation, isn't it, Pastor Kearns? Um, I mean, no one, no one sits around wondering about uh, what's coming out in your stool uh, 24 hours after you receive the sacrament of the altar. And in fact, that I, I would suggest that this is a, a straw man by reduction to the absurd, right? Now, let's talk about a mouse, though, however, right? I mean, what does it, if a mouse uh, eats some of the fallen crumbs from the consecrated wafer, Does he eat the body and blood of Christ? Well, what has Christ said it is? It's it's his body. So what does the mouse eat? His body. Is he sanctified by that? Well, no, because a mouse can't believe. Now, this is going to come up later, right? There is not some sort of automatic sanctification that occurs when you eat the body and drink the blood of Christ. It must be eaten and drunk in faith for you to gain the benefit from it, to be sanctified by it. Uh, but if you eat it and drink it, as St. Paul says, St. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, eat it and drink it with unbelief, you take it to your judgment. And that very statement of St. Paul indicates that it is what, I mean, does a piece of bread condemn you to hell? Give me a break. But but if you disregard the very body of Christ, well, that's that's serious business.
0: All of these questions and the nonsense they introduce into doctrinal discussion can be avoided by considering John 6, verses 41 through 59 in the context of John 6, verses 22 through 40.
2: Which, again, we totally agree. Correct, but none of these silly questions can be avoided. Silly, is, and I'm putting these in scare quotes. None of these can be avoided when you actually talk about the words of institution and this is the problem he is not deriving doctrine from the place where doctrine is taught
0: what do i mean well in verses 22 through 40 we saw clearly in the last podcast episode that the way to eternal life was by coming to jesus and believing not by eating or drinking anything eating and drinking were metaphors for coming and believing Even in this section, amid the confusion expressed by those listening to Jesus, those same clear ideas are included. Verses 47 through 48 clearly define what Jesus is saying about eating and drinking as believing. Let me read them again for you. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. So, belief in Jesus is how we receive eternal life, not by eating a wafer or drinking wine. It is in this context that Jesus' statement, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, must be understood. Why theologians would think that the giving of Jesus' body refers to communion here, and not to Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, The very act that provided payment for our sins is, frankly, lost on me.
2: Listener, be wary. What he's doing here is he is conflating two terms. He's conflating a term uh, in verse 53 where Jesus says, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. So there, uh, the word there is actually flesh, not body. When Jesus institutes the sacrament of the altar, he does not say, take, eat, this is my flesh. He says, take, eat, this is my body. And so, for this very reason, good sacramental theologians say John chapter 6 has absolutely nothing to do with the sacrament of the altar. We do not derive doctrine from from it on the sacrament, uh, but this guy is going to. Be careful.
0: If we understand John 6 to be about faith in Jesus, it makes perfect sense. We believe in what Jesus said, that he would give his life for the sins of the world. He did that on the cross. It's not talking about taking communion. It's about believing the good news about what was accomplished on the cross.
1: I know we sound like a broken record here, but this is what we agree with him on. What he's saying is absolutely correct when it
2: comes to John 6 but he needs to keep it in John 6. Precisely, and for the very reason that he's established that it does not speak to the sacrament of the altar.
1: Is there an example off the top of your head right now where we could look and we could say, the Bible says one thing, and it really refers to that thing
2: there is, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, we've we've just found one. Uh, it's Matthew uh, chapter nineteen, verse sixteen and following. I'll read it out loud, and then and then maybe you can uh, we can just sort of digest it. Uh, so then, behold, a man came up to him, saying, "Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life?" And he said to him, "Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments." He said to him. Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall have, uh, love your neighbor's, uh, neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So what is Jesus up to here? Well, he's using the law to convict him,
1: which the man is totally not convicted by. He says, I've kept all those from my
2: youth. What else do you have? Good. His, his original question is this, what, must I, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So Jesus responds to this law question with the doctrine of the law. Right. A law answer. Exactly. And he's exactly right, isn't he? If you could keep the Ten Commandments perfectly in your heart and your mind and your soul and your body, you would inherit eternal life. You would be Jesus Christ himself with y- all yeah, the treasures of heaven. Right, because you, don't, you certainly don't need a Savior. You don't need a Savior, right? So the point is no one in their right mind, uh, although maybe Roman Catholic theologians would, no one in their right mind would say that Jesus here is actually talking about the salvation that scripture that all of the scriptures argue for which is salvation through faith in the son of God and that alone so he I I mean I think this is a good example don't you where if we were to take this verse uh you know somebody came into our office and they're crushed by their sin and they said you know man I I'm I'm going to I know I'm going to hell how do I have eternal life and we said well you know if you would be perfect go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven believe me they would walk away sad too <laughs> just like this guy <laughs> yes right and the reason is because this passage does not speak to the matter of everlasting life as it is offered by the gospel
1: i'm racking my brain here trying to think of is there a is there a rule a hermeneutical rule so to speak that he
2: is breaking by doing this yes there is <clears throat> and it's this there's a there's this idea or not idea it's just clear that every teaching of Scripture has what's known as a sedes doctrina, a seat of the teaching, a place where you can anchor your teaching on a specific topic in a verse that actually talks about that specific topic. You can think about all the kinds of mistakes that you could that you could make, okay? So if I want to know what God teaches about marriage, I turn to the Sixth Commandment, right? You shall not commit adultery and everything that flows out of that. But if I were to consult, uh, you know, (laughs) let's just, I mean, I'm going to go as ridiculous as I possibly can here. Suppose there are two neighbors, a man and a woman, each married to their own husband or wife, and they uh, see one another and become attracted. And if they were to go to love your neighbor as yourself, right, and take that as their sedes doctrinae for how they ought to act toward one another, Well, they would wind up in one another's beds, contrary to the sixth commandment. This is a good illustration to show that you actually have to have a sedes doctrinae, that you have to go to a passage that actually talks about the topic you want to talk about.
0: Now the following context of the passage supports what I'm saying here. After throwing his listeners into confusion about literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood, We read as we go on in verses 60 through 65, this, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Notice what Jesus says And doesn't say. It is not the bread and wine that give life in these verses. It's the Spirit.
1: He can't stop talking about this wine, can he? That is nowhere found in this
2: text at all. Exactly, nowhere found in the text at all. Uh, Listen to how he's saying it. He's saying it very carefully and he's saying it correctly, but he's leading you to an incorrect conclusion. He's saying this verse does not say that bread and wine save you. That is correct. But what he wants you to believe on the basis of that is that this verse is saying that bread and wine do not save you. That's a huge difference. Uh, It's where you place the negation. Do not be misled by this. His, His statement is correct on its face. Where he's driving it is totally incorrect. I
1: know I'm probably out in left field when I, when I say, suggest something like this. This is almost the way that Satan uses the Scriptures. Indeed. Talk about that. Well, You think about how Satan's tempting of Christ, especially if I recall correctly, the second temptation. In
2: Matthew, yes.
1: Where he uses the Scriptures to actually get Jesus to do what he wanted him to do.
2: He uses it, yes, he does, and there he miscites the scriptures.
1: And I wouldn't suggest that, uh, you know, the doctor here is misquoting scripture, but there is a subtle,
2: almost seduction that's that's taking place here. Good, and and maybe a better a better place to go would be to the to the actual temptation uh, in the Garden of Eden. Sure, right? Did God really say? That if, that if you eat the, this uh, stuff, you, you will surely die. And actually, let's, let's just take a look, because Satan adds a little bit there, and that's where the problem comes in. As you've pointed out so often, words matter. Okay, so this is, this is how the temptation starts off, right? The Lord uh, had told them, uh, "'You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, "'but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil "'you shall not eat.'" For in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So Satan comes up to the woman chapter 3 and says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, actually not, not at all. Uh, so the woman responds and uh, uh, and says, um, God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Actually God didn't say the touching part. But we go on. The the, the the serpent says, well, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Why is that? Well, because it's the it's the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, yes, this is a satanic uh, twisting of the scriptures uh, where you slip in your words. And, and this is just a little slip. I mean, it is just a little slip that he's making. Right.
1: It's a little slip, but it has ginormous consequences.
2: Exactly.
1: Exactly. And I guess the the thought that I'm having, I mean, somebody could listen, to, be listening to this, and they could just, you know, they could castigate us. And, and that's fine. I mean, I, I get it. But all we're trying to do is be good Bereans and really study the Scriptures
2: and see if these things be true. That's good. I mean, that, that's exactly right. Uh, so he has led us exactly where we ought to be going, which is into the scriptures, isn't it? And, you know, maybe people are going to niggle with us, too, about that we're making a big deal about where you place the negation in a sentence. But it makes all the difference in the world. Listen, if we were engineers
1: and, and we were quibbling over a couple of degrees here or here when it comes to building
2: a bridge... You that know. makes all the difference in the world. A few degrees and building a bridge makes all the difference right. in the world. You get it You get it wrong on one side of the Golden Gate Bridge, and you're going to be way off on the other. Exactly. Right. And
1: somebody's going to get hurt.
2: Right, and die. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. That's a great point.
0: He doesn't say that there were some among his listeners who hadn't eaten. He says, there are some of you who do not believe. His concern is that people will believe on him. Verse 40 Not that they won't believe the bread would turn into his flesh when they ate it. That Jesus' focus would be on their belief in him, not on what they ate or drank, is entirely consistent with what Jesus said earlier in John 6, that I'm trying to get you to discern. This is a good time to remind listeners of something I noted in the last podcast, something that isn't obvious but which would be clear if we looked at John with a wide-angle lens. Jesus never hands out any bread after he makes his bread and wine comments. That's because this episode in John 6 is not the Last Supper event. In the three synoptic Gospels and their description of the Last Supper, there are several elements present. One... Jesus makes some comment that connects his broken body and the bread, and his blood, the wine, to the new covenant. Two, after making that connection, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples and then tells them one among them will betray him. John 6 doesn't have either of these details. In fact, the scene of the Last Supper with these details And the announcement of the betrayal occurs much later in the Gospel of John, in John 13. The chronology of John's Gospel, therefore, does not allow John 6 to be connected with the Last Supper. And so I would argue it shouldn't be the chapter that informs our doctrine of communion.
2: We agree for crying out loud. Yes, I mean, we couldn't say anything more, but note here what he is doing. He is saying it does not apply to the Lord's Supper, and then he's applying it to the Lord's Supper, and this is a huge problem.
0: And we know from Paul that it is the night of the Last Supper that is supposed to inform our doctrine of communion, since Paul explicitly starts his discussion with the words, quote, The same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, That is nowhere in view in John 6. We
1: We agree agree! For crying out loud!
0: Now in our next podcast on the Lord's Supper, we'll move away from John 6 to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. That is where we'll find the most detailed help for what the Lord's Supper really means
1: pastor bros usually when we come to the end of of one of these things we you always look so exhausted i, I think I'm, I'm actually
2: i'm actually fairly invigorated by this because uh, I, I think i'm exhausted by the other ones because it's such tripe that we've been listening to uh, this one actually um, is a very carefully argued well no it's not carefully argued it is argued uh, and he's actually got an argument. Uh, it, it's very uncareful argumentation. And maybe what we could do is just take a moment to sort of sum up what the mistakes are here. Um, number one, uh, he, there's, there's major semantic slippage. We just saw this between this whole, uh, where Jesus says, where he equates flesh and bread. Well, what he's doing is he's slipping into the language of the Lord's Supper, where he's saying bread and body. Well, Jesus doesn't talk about that in John chapter 6. Another thing that he's doing is he is making a mistake of not identifying the proper sedes doctrinae. He, he, he wants it um, sort of two ways, right? He wants to deny that John 6 is a sedes doctrinae for the sacrament of the altar, but what he has done, actually, is take the teaching of John 6 and superimpose it on the teaching of the sacrament of the altar. I, I, I don't even know what this is. This is like a Jekyll and Hyde kind of move on his part. Then he's also imported the idea that Jesus is talking about wine in, in this chapter. Uh, he's not talking about wine. He doesn't mention it one single time. And so, you know, that only goes to Buttress' point that this is not talking about the sacrament of the altar, but look at what he's doing. He's he's using that as a hook to lead along people to say, ah, Jesus is talking about the sacrament of the altar here and we should understand all the other accounts as a result, uh, you know, of this understanding. And then finally, he, he's he's set up some straw men uh, that are that are really unfortunate as if all uh, sacramental Christians okay and what I mean by that is the Lutherans the Episcopal not the Episcopalians the Lutherans the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox all agree that uh, John chapter 6 refers to the sacrament of the altar I think you've summed it up quite nicely
1: But as he just alluded to, there's several more podcasts where he will actually get to the Synoptic Gospels uh, and he will get to what Paul says in Corinthians.
2: I am looking forward to, to those.
1: Well, we're looking forward to you listening to it as well.
0: You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com
1: or stjohnlcmstopeka.org. We
2: We agree. agree
1: for crying out loud.